You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. Uh, maybe at some time in the past when you got dressed in the dark once, you got your shirt buttoned and it felt right, and then you got out and looked and realized you'd gotten the buttons all wonky. You ever done that before or seen a seven-year-old that is made it all the way to church or all the way to school and they didn't realize they got it wrong? But while the sleeves are on and the shirt is basically covering, it, it isn't right. They've got the wrong button in the wrong buttonhole. And, and if it starts really with the top, right? You've maybe heard someone use this as an illustration before that if you get this one wrong or this one wrong, the rest of them inevitably are out of order. Why are we doing what we're doing with this series that leads us all the way into Easter called Redeemer? We so want, I want this for myself and I want it for you. I want you to get the right things first. I know that in our hearts we are prone to see God as a taskmaster who is angry at us and wants us to run harder, wants us to perform more, wants us to do better. And we have a sense that we're not doing well and that he's frustrated with us. See, that is truly getting the wrong button in the first button hole. You are going to be off even if you got close, even if you feel like you got close. Maybe you feel like you succeeded in religion in some way or another this week. You did well. Or maybe you limped in here feeling utterly discouraged, utterly doubting God's kindness Maybe God would be kind to them, those people over there, but not to you. You're convinced that you're, you're the exception because you know your heart and you have fear and doubt coming into this room. I so just want to unpack who our Redeemer is. I want you to see him. I want you to hear him. I want you to experience the grace, the kindness, the love, the wisdom that is in him for us not just for some generation long ago, but for us here today. And so as we look at Mark chapter 2, we see one of these great encounters that really has so much there. It says in, uh, let me give you a roadmap. I'm so bad at doing this. Sometimes I forget to do this, but a roadmap of where we're going today, just to set your expectations in the right place. Verses 1 through 4 show us what faith looks like. Faith in action. Not just faith that's understood, but faith in action. Verse 5, we see Jesus addressing the greater need, the hidden need, the truest need. And then in verses 6 through 12, we see who Jesus really is. And everybody has to come to grips with that. And so that's a roadmap of where we're going to go today. And I hope and pray that God will speak to your heart. Let's start with the first four verses. It says, when Jesus returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was home and that many were gathered there together so that there's no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. They came bringing him a paralytic carried on a mat by four men. And then when they could not reach him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they'd made an opening... They let down the bed on which the paralytic was laying. Let's just stop there and let's look at a couple of things that stand out. One is that Jesus has been healing. If you look at the previous chapters in Mark, he's been at work healing late into the night. 
healing the leper. And so the word is getting out that Jesus is a miracle worker, a healer of the sick. If you and I had touched a leper in that context, our crowd would get smaller because that is not appropriate. It makes you dirty. But in Jesus' case, the crowds are just getting larger and larger. And it says that when he came into Capernaum, he was at home. Now, again, you can go to Capernaum today. You can walk into uh, the actual excavation site where there was a synagogue, and then you can go across the way, and there's uh, a house they believe to be Peter's mother-in-law's house. And there's good reason to believe that because it has been noted as that for since that first generation. And you can walk, and there's a glass floor there that looks down into it. And so when we see Capernaum being described as his home base, this is for three years, the more peaceful, tranquil place up north, away from Jerusalem where there is chaos and there is religious leaders and there's turmoil and there's lots of activity. Capernaum's not like that even today. It's just more relaxed. And that's where he calls home. Word has gotten out that he is at home and the crowd swells to hear him preach the word. He's undoubtedly teaching them with such authority that they say, this isn't like what we're used to hearing. This guy is speaking as if he was actually there, that he was present, that he actually believes it, that he is teaching with power and with authority and the kind of teaching that actually hits you right in the core of who you are. And it says that the crowd was so large, they couldn't get at him. These men come carrying a paralytic Who knows who these men are to each other? The Scripture doesn't tell us. I think it's safe to say they've known each other for a while. Maybe one's an older brother. Maybe one's a cousin. Maybe a childhood friend. We don't know, but they've been assigned a corner of the mat, and they are carrying a paralytic, someone probably dear to them because they heard the news about Jesus being a healer. And so they're going to risk it all. They're going to push through the crowd. The average house at that time, if you filled every nook, every cranny, you might could get 50 people in there. If you filled up the courtyard outside, you might get another 25, another 30. It looks to me in this passage, there's well over 100 people crowding around, gathering at the door, gathering at the windows, every place they can just to hear Jesus teach. He is bread of life. He is living water. He is sustenance, not for their bodies, but for their souls. And so they are leaning in to hear him. And these men, they come and they're carrying someone dear to them who can't walk. And they must have looked at that crowd and thought, we're going to have to either be really, really rude and push our ways through, or we're going to have to give up and just come back some other time. Because there's too many people here. There's just no way. So maybe we just wait. Maybe we come back. And somebody somewhere, maybe it's the paralytic himself, maybe it's the older brother of this guy, but somebody says, not so fast, I've got an idea. We're going to need some rope, though. I mean, it's not like they came with rope. But somebody said, "Uh uh-uh, I don't care what. I don't care what we got to do. I've got a plan. We're going to do it. Guys, just follow me, and we're going towards the roof. Now, a lot of these houses would have had easy access through a ladder or stairway to the rooftop of these houses. And so this guy says, you know what? 
I've got a plan. And so they get this guy. Now you have to picture narrow stairway, not made for four guys carrying a mat with a friend on it. They've strapped him in somehow, and they've headed up the steps. And then as the, whoever the foreman of this crew is, looks at the wall and says, I calculate it's probably 10 paces to where Jesus is. And then he looks down and he says, okay, start digging. What? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if we, if we tear open this guy's roof, and, and if we dig through the mud and the branches and the leaves and all of that, we can just let him down on a, the pallet that he's on. <laughs> what are you talking about? You're going to destroy a guy's house to get your friend in front of Jesus? Yeah, I sure am. We are, in fact. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I sure hope that I have friends like this. I hope you're a friend like this. I hope that in your gospel community within this church, you find people that are so committed to your health and well-being that they're willing to be desperate, to be bold, to be destructive of someone's property, need be, to get you in front of Jesus. Because that's who these guys are. And that's a glorious and beautiful thing. It's desperate. It's bold. It's risky. It's a lot of things. But let me tell you what it is. It's what faith looks like. We often think that if I have faith in Jesus, it would just be up here. It will somehow be something I just agree with. That it will never actually touch the way I spend money, the way I talk to my wife, the way I spend my time. Let me tell you something. You have faith and I have faith that we exercise all the time. Because you believed these chairs would hold you up, not a single one of you did a weight rating on the chair before you sat down. Nobody said, let me, let me just test it a little bit. Let me put, you know, like half my weight on it. And, and if that seems good, well, then I'll go ahead and slide half of me onto it. And if that seems to be working out, I'll just grab a seat. You believed the chair would hold you, and so you sat down. You didn't even test it. Right? You believed the light was green, and because the light was green, you didn't even slow down. You just went through this intersection. Unless you've been in a wreck before. And then you slow down because you don't believe for sure that everybody's playing by the same rules, right? This is what faith looks like. It says that when Jesus saw their faith, and so what I want to challenge you to think about is how does your faith in the Son of God saving you from the wrath of God richly deserved and earned by us, how does your faith in Him shape your actions? It can't be just what you mentally assent to. It will show up. According to James, the little brother of Jesus, your faith, if it's true saving faith, will show up in a lot of areas in your life. These guys believe that if they can get their friend in front of Jesus, he's going to get healing. And because of that, they start tunneling through a guy's roof. So as Jesus is preaching, 
The sound of squirrels in the attic is probably insufficient. These guys are tunneling. There's debris falling from the roof. The owner of the house is fighting his way through the crowd to get to the door so he can get up on the roof and say, stop it. And as they're tunneling, and as debris is falling and light starts to break through, and four curious faces that are a little bit embarrassed but a little bit just determined are peeking their heads through. And as the hole grows larger and larger, a mat starts to emerge. A pallet starts to emerge. And it starts coming down with him strapped to it. Is Jesus mad? Is Jesus disappointed? Is he like, hey, come on, I'm preaching here? No. And and don't imagine for a moment that it came down smoothly like all balanced and all equal. No, if, you, if four of us decided that we were going to tear up a roof and we were going to, with ropes, let a pallet down with someone strapped to it, it wouldn't be smooth. It would be awkward, treacherous, perilous. It would be awful. These guys are so determined to get their friend in front of Jesus that they're willing to do it. And I think it's beautiful. My heart longs, longs, longs to stay connected to the Savior all the days of my life. I don't want to drift from Him. I don't want to go far from Him. I want to stay near Him. And I need friends like this, and you do too, to keep us in proximity to our Redeemer, to our Savior. To do whatever it takes to fight for our proximity to Him even if it frustrates and makes a big old mess. I hope you will see that that's what faith looks like. It says in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Huh. I mean, you have to admit that no one asked the question of why they'd come. We all know why they came. I mean, it's, it's, it's very obvious why they came to Jesus. No one needs to ask this question. We know why they came. We've got a paralyzed man here. He needs healing. That's why they've come. So when Jesus starts off with this, son, your sins are forgiven, you can almost see kind of a, a curious disappointment on the face of of the paralytic, and probably the four guys up there saying, what did he say? I mean, he said something about forgiveness, and I mean, good, that's great, and all that, but I mean, we didn't tongue through a guy's roof so that he, we want him to walk. I mean, that, that's why he's here. <laughs> why did you come today? I mean, I know a friend invited some of you, and you're like, man, just to get him off my back. I was like, man, I'll, sure, let's go do this thing, whatever. I mean, is it entirely possible that I or you, that all of us come to the, to the Lord with the obvious need that we have? If you would meet this need that is very obvious to me, it would prove that you love me, that I know what my need is, and I'm coming to you, and you need to meet my need. And what if we, like him, absolutely couldn't see that there was a greater need than the one that was most obvious to me? Jesus looks at this paralyzed man, 
and says, I understand what your need behind your need is. I know you. I formed you for myself. And though you can't yet see it, you will someday that your greatest need right now is not functioning limbs. It's kind of hard to say, wouldn't it be? I mean, here's a paralyzed man who tunneled through a roof with his friends just to get there, and he doesn't understand his greatest need? No, I don't think so. His greatest need is for his heart, his soul, his whole being to, made, to be made right with God through grace and th- by faith in Jesus. And that's it. His greatest need isn't his most obvious need. Your sins are forgiven. See, it always seems to come back to this. God, if, if you would do X, Y, and Z for me, that's why I've come to you, well, then I'd be good. Everything would be good. And while that's not wrong, friends, please hear me. It is right and good for you to lift up the most present felt need in your life right now. And for some of you, you're in a loveless marriage. You feel deeply alone. And you want God to fix that. Or for some of you, you want a child, or you want a spouse, or you want that new job that would fit your, kind of suits you better, and you would feel better about it if, and so you pray about that, and you go, would you, why am I praying for years about this, and you're not moving, you're not doing? This isn't, like, if you love me, you'd do this for me, and you know what I think, and this is good and right, because in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, right, Doesn't he tell us that we should lift up our prayers, that we should, with thanksgiving, not be anxious for anything, but with thanksgiving, lift up your request to the Lord? He sure does invite us to do that. What about Psalm 62 and verse 8, that he says, trust in the Lord at all times. Pour out your heart before him. He's a refuge for us. Should we not carry our wants, our request to him? We certainly should. But know this, friends, that request that is so obvious to us may be the, most thing, the thing that we most want for him to do, but he can see the need behind the need. He can see the deep longing of your soul, and it has to do with your forgiveness, your introduction, your ongoing invitation into the Father's presence through the Son, forgiveness of sin. The deepest need is not just that he could walk. It's that he could have forgiveness in Jesus' name. There's a quote by Jim Carrey that I think is just a great quote. Yeah, Jim Carrey. I'm quoting him. I hope that everyone can become rich and famous and get everything they ever wanted so that they will realize that it's not the answer. It's an interesting thing, like, you could go away. If this guy went away healed, like if, if, he, if Jesus had done kind of what he was supposed to do, the first thing he says as he comes through that ceiling is, get up and walk. <laughs> and this guy, with great elation, gets up and walks, carries his bed out. Excuse me, excuse me, I'm going home with my mat, with my pallet. And he, now he can walk through the streets with his friends. He can skip and chase 
He can chase his nieces and nephews. He can, he can do all that. He can get a job. He can get married. He can get all that. For how long is he happy? Well, probably a long time, because that's a big one. That's a big deal. But doesn't he need something more than a body that is healed that is eventually going to die and that he's going to end up in the grave like the rest of us with no hope, no peace, no eternal life? What he needs at his truest level is something he can't see in that moment. He needs the Savior. He needs the Redeemer. And so you come here today and I come here today and we have these felt needs and we want God to answer these felt needs and that is good that we should pray about them. But know this, friends, our Redeemer sees deeper than we can what's really happening in our hearts, what's really happening in our souls, and he is determined because of his wisdom and his love to meet that need. And then what comes from there is resolved. Notice that when Jesus tells this guy, your sins are forgiven, that there's some people there, the scribes, usually with the Pharisees, and so it wouldn't be a stretch to imagine that it's probably scribes and Pharisees. It says scribes, and so these are the religious experts, the scholars, the religious leaders of their day, and they have come because they want to check out Jesus, who is this new guy that is on the scene now healing people and teaching about God. And, and so they see this, and they're expecting just a miracle worker. In fact, I think the whole crowd is expecting a miracle worker. So what in the world is Jesus doing saying something like, your sins are forgiven? And they've got a problem with this, and they should have a problem with this. Blasphemy is when you make a declaration of heresy against God. And they say that's exactly what he's doing. He doesn't have the right to forgive sins. If, if while we're up here and, and we're standing here and someone comes up to Michael and just slaps him in the face, and I look over at that person and go, I forgive you for doing that. What's Michael thinking? Boop, boop. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> they didn't slap you, they slapped me. No, oh, I know. And I've forgiven them for slapping you. You'd have every right to go, I think that's between me and them, not between you. And he'd be right, unless he was standing here with Jesus, and Jesus looked at the offending party and said, I forgive you. Because every sin that is ever committed against an, a person born in the image of God is first and foremost against God. So you guys remember when, um, well, who could forget that when Will Smith slapped Chris Rock? You know what Chris Rock's mom said and his brother? He says that when Will Smith slapped my son, he slapped me. He slapped us all. And so you can see that if the sin involves the triune God, if, if sin is always against him first and foremost, Jesus has every right as God Almighty in human flesh to look at this man and say to him, I forgive your sins. And so you can see that while there is confusion on the face of the guys upstairs and the guy on the mat, there is anger, anger, anger on the face of the scribes, because they say, you have no right to do this. Who do you think you are? Who is Jesus? 
Well, I hope that you have got him a little bit higher than these guys do, that you're not saying in your mind, well, I can add him to my life as a good accessory. I can just kind of put him in the margins of my life as, well, he's like a lot of people. He's a great teacher. He's a great philosopher. He's all that. No, he is more than that. And we just sang it. He is the, the roaring lion. He is the lion of Judah. He is the lamb who was slain. He is our redeemer. He is our savior. And he will not fit into the margins of my life. Nor would I want him there once I know who he is. Because he is joy. He is life. And he has come to meet not just my surface need. He has come to meet the deep need of my soul. Well, the question is, does he have any right to do that? Does he have the power to do that. And Jesus knows what's going on in the hearts of these guys. They're saying, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. He has no right. He's taking the place of God, though he's just a man. So how can he do that? Only God can forgive sin. In verse 8, immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioning within themselves, he said, why do you question these things in your hearts? That must have been a jarring moment. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. I see inside your heart. And so let me do this for you. Let me, let me show you something. Which is easier? For me to say your sins are forgiven or for me to say get up, carry your pallet home, walk? Which one's easier? Well, be a whole lot easier to say your sins are forgiven because who can verify that? But if you tell this guy to get up and walk home, we're all going to find out if you've got the authority to say that. Imagine for a moment that if I told you that in the late 90s and early 2000s, I made some spectacular financial investments. They weren't just spectacular, they were really lucky. And because of that, in the bank right now, I've got $157 million. I do. I really do. That's claim one. Here's claim two. I can levitate. In fact, I could fly around this room, do a few flips, and land safely. I could high-five the back row if I wanted to without ever walking up the steps. Now, which one's easier to say? Well, the first one's easier to say because... There's only a, two or three people in this room that could verify that by looking at my phone. But if I say that I can fly, <laughs> we're all going to find out whether or not I'm just making it all up. So you might say, well, let's see it then, Superman. <laughs> let's see you fly. Now, here's the truth. If I did, if I did love take, do a few flips, come back down, how much are you going to doubt my first claim? You're like, well, I didn't think you could fly, so I'm kind of guessing maybe you do have a bunch of money in the bank, right? See what's happening here? What Jesus is saying is, hey, you say that I have no authority to forgive sins because only God could do that. Well, tell me what only God could do with a paralytic. Tell him to get up and walk. And so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And that's exactly what he did. What a beautiful picture 
that Jesus is saying, I know you don't know who I am. I know that you've assigned me into some small corner, into something you've seen before, something like a great preacher or something like some kind of David Blaine type miracle worker, and I'm not that. I am God in human flesh, almighty maker of heaven and earth. I am your redeemer. I am your savior. And because of that, I will demonstrate for you that I have the authority to forgive sin and to heal the broken. And so that's what he does. It matters to us so deeply because we might want him only to be the miracle worker. Do you know what I mean by that? We might settle on just accepting him as someone who could meet the present need of the moment that I can see and never really understand that there is something so much more deeply beautiful about him, more wonderful about him, is that he can also heal your soul and make you alive again. I wonder about this guy. I wonder about a lot of these people. Like when we meet him in heaven, all these people that he interacted with. I kind of want to ask this guy, when the months went by and you could walk again, which statement meant more to you? Get up and walk, your sins are forgiven. I have a, a good, strong sense that he loved walking. I think he probably turned into some great soccer player, local soccer player, always challenging people to a race. You want to race? I'll beat you. He probably did that, and he probably loved that, and that's great. But you know what? As he moved forward and thought about the fact, he cleansed me. He made me right with God. And that's way better than just running and walking. And so, friends, I want you to hear this. I hope and pray that you've given up the notion that you can do this yourself. You can't. You're, you're as incapable of fixing what's wrong between you and God as this guy was at walking and running before he met Jesus. He couldn't do it. Couldn't, he, he was paralyzed. Well, guess what? That's us. Can't fix what's broken between me and God. God is a redeeming God. God is a good and loving Father, and He sent His Son. And when they see that, when they understand that He is more than just someone who can heal the paralyzed, He can cleanse sin, they say what we would all say. We've never seen anything like this. We've seen a lot, seen a lot of stuff in our lives. We've never seen anything like this. I want you to see Him I want you to know him, and I want you to know that he loves you. He is your healer. He is your sacrifice. He's the one who can take away the sin of the world. And he may leave you longer than you'd like in the broken place where your felt need is unmet. And rather than telling him, this shows me you don't love him, you don't love me. Just say to him over and over again, if you're going to leave me in this moment for a while, will you teach me what it means that you are my sustenance, that you are my treasure? Because ultimately, someday you'll go home in full healing, and you'll know what it is to run and walk on the streets of heaven. And until then, you have him, and he's at work in the midst of your brokenness. Pray with me.